Psalm 100 says, Enter God's house with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. This week we got Thanksgiving coming up. Anybody excited about that? Man, I love Thanksgiving. But even better than that, Thanksgiving, right, can happen right now. As we enter God's house with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, we give thanks to him and praise his name. And that's what Thanksgiving is. It's just us looking back to God and saying, God, you have blessed us so much. We just want to thank you for that. We want to give you praise for that. We want to honor you for that because you've been good to us. And God's been good to you. I don't know if you're coming off a great week or a bad week. I've got a great week in front of me. i got no work next week. I'm pumped about that. Regardless of where you're at, God's still good, right? He's still worthy of giving thanks to. And so we can honor him and praise him because he's a good God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you because you are a good God, because you have blessed us in so many ways. You've blessed us with your son and the salvation through him. You've blessed us with a community here at Foundry. You've blessed us with friends. You've blessed us with a great future in you. We give you thanks for all of these things. We give you praise for all of these things. We extol your name. We lift you up because you are a good God. And we want to thank you for all that you've given us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. Y'all, thanks for being here today. If you are here for the very first time, if you're visiting today, we want to welcome you. Can we give it up for our visitors today? Welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you here. And everybody else, we're also glad you're here. I just want to give it up for you right now. We're glad everybody else is here as well. <laughs> hey, we're about to jump into the rest of our service. A great message ahead and some more time of worship. But before we do that, I want you to turn to a few people around you. Three high fives, two handshakes. Ready, set, break, go. One, two, three. Hey, I'm Elijah. Lauren, good to meet you. Have we met? Well, it's good to be here and good, good to praise God together and learn from His Word together. We are in a series right now called It Just Takes One, about how one conversation, one person, one experience you have can actually change somebody else's life forever. And we're going to jump off today in the, the book of Acts, chapter 16. This is in the middle of a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, his journeys. He's going around sharing the gospel and teaching other people, starting new churches all around uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And this is a story about how he goes to a place in the, the province of Macedonia called Philippi. And so if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 16, we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Paul and his ministry partner Silas are in jail right now. And it says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open. 
and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and all of your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Let's pray together. Jesus, take this word that we have read today, your scripture that that you want us to understand, and apply it to our lives, apply it to our hearts, apply it to our minds. Let us walk out of this place today different because we have encountered you through your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Have you guys ever thought about what the most viewed picture in the world is? Most popular picture in the world. I, I, I've never, what did you say? Grumpy, grumpy cat. That's close. The grumpy cat meme. I, I actually had never thought about this question until this week when I saw something about it. My first thought, most, pop, most viewed picture of all time, right? It would be Mona Lisa. I mean, absolutely. Like, how, how could anything beat that because it's everybody's favorite? Is, is that anybody actually anybody's favorite picture, though? Like, it's kind of an <laughs> underwhelming picture. You know, for some reason, she became famous. So I, my, that's my first thought, Mona Lisa. Uh, but, then, but then I was reading this article, and they made a convincing case that almost certainly the most viewed picture in the world is one that you've probably seen before. And it's this right here. Fisher, can you throw it up for us? <laughs> Anybody know what this is? This is the desktop background for Windows XP. Your everyone's like, oh, I saw that. Yeah, you used to have icons all over the whole thing, so you can't even see it. Right? A lot of us, depending on how old you were, probably had Windows XP on a computer at some point. I was a Windows 98 guy originally, right? That's my favorite. When it updated to the new XP, it was a big deal for us. And just this picture, it's called Bliss. Now, this, this is a real hill. I mean, it's, I guess that should be obvious, but it's in California. And I looked up pictures of it, and it doesn't actually look this good. I don't know what kind of Photoshop magic they did on this. But this looks amazing. I see this, and I just think, yes, life's good. This is the most viewed picture in the world because Windows XP was loaded onto something like a billion, billion plus computers. So you can imagine you have several billion people using computers with this, viewing it dozens of times a day. This is the most viewed picture in the world. Now, why is this the most viewed picture in the world? Is it because it's the best picture ever taken? No. Is it because it's just somehow perfect? No. It's it's a beautiful picture. The reason it's the most viewed picture in the world is because it's the default. When something's the default, you just end up going back to that over and over again. Some people would get exciting and change this, but a lot of us who are lazy would just keep this. You have the default. So a lot of us on your phone, you have whatever the default is. That's just your your locked screen. You just have the default there. And the default tends to be what you see and experience all the time. Isn't it weird to think that Bill Gates picked a picture that would be the most famous picture in the world? Or somebody did, Bill Gates or somebody else. Like He got to influence all of us because it was our default picture. Now in life, a lot of us have defaults. For most of us, the default of our life, listen to this, is ourselves. what, What do you think about if you have a free weekend, no responsibilities, what do you think about? What do you do? I take a nap. I chill out. I watch The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. I just, I just take it easy. I do what I want to do. Why? Because my default is myself. 
If I'm, if I'm, if I'm thinking about something during the day, if you, if you catch me at any random moment, what am I probably thinking about? Well, something to do with myself. It's like, yeah, what am I going to eat for lunch? What am I going to eat for dinner? What am I going to eat for my afternoon snack? What am I going to eat for my morning snack? Or think about, hey, when can I take a nap? Or, hey, when, when do, you know, what do I have to do tonight? Our default is ourselves. Anybody else relate to this? Everybody else is like, no, my default is the Lord. I, yeah, whatever your default, what you think about is yourself most of the time. And this, this makes sense. Why? Because you are you. And so if you are you, what are you going to think about? Yourself, right? This improves a little bit when you become a parent because then at least you're thinking about like yourself and your kid, right? So it improves a little bit. But most of us, we're constantly thinking about ourselves. Now, now there's, there's nothing wrong with thinking about yourself or making decisions about what you need to do. But the problem is when this becomes the default of your life, it restricts what God can do in and through your life. When your default, what you're viewing over and over and over again, where your mind goes over and over and over again, your default often directs your future. You ever think about that? Whatever your default of your mind is often directs where you end up in the future. So I think a lot of us would look at our lives and we say, hey, we want to make a difference. I think most of us want to make a difference in this world. But the problem is our default keeps us coming back to ourselves. And instead of making a difference and making an impact and leaving a legacy, we end up just doing things that keep us going through the week. What do I have to do to make it through this week? What do I have to get done on my to-do list to make it to next week, to make it to the weekend? And we become so caught up in ourselves. Now, the Apostle Paul was almost the exact opposite of this. Now, we picked up, when we picked up the story of what was going on in Paul's life, he's in a prison. Now, is this part of anybody's like, future you're dreaming about? Like, man, someday I hope the Lord just puts me in a prison. You know, like, I just really would love that. That's probably not part of your future. Uh, but Paul finds himself in this prison, but how he responds in that challenge really tells us a lot about what his default is. Paul, th- I'm convinced of this. Paul was like a hedgehog. You might know what a hedgehog is. Cute, little, cuddly, Sonic the Hedgehog. Or just this cute little thing. Now, they've got the quills too, right? They can poke you. But hedgehogs are like the most adorable things in the world. And you know this, I'm not an animal guy, right? So for me to say an animal is the most adorable thing in the world really means it's really cute. A hedgehog has a grand total of one thing it does well in this world. It curls up into a ball. Now, a lot of you, that's the one thing you do well in this world too. You just curl up into a ball, and that's what it does. Now, here's the great thing about it. What happens when it curls up into a ball? It's safe. Nothing can get at it. So, so there's an ancient story comparing the hedgehog to the fox. What does the hedgehog do? Curls up in a ball. What does the fox do? It tries every possible way to get at that hedgehog. Comes up with every solution. Every It tries to trick it. It tries to do this and that, but it can't get at the hedgehog. Why? Because the hedgehog has its one move. What should your one move be in life? What should your default be in life? For Paul, we're about to see in this story, Paul's default is he leads people to live in love like Jesus. No matter where he's at. What what am I going to do today? Get up. Oh, what's on my to-do list? For Paul, it was one thing. Lead people to live and love like Jesus. The next day, what's his one thing? Lead people to live and love like Jesus. And for you, if you want to have a life that matters, if you want to have a life that changes other people's lives, a life that leaves a legacy, you need to have a default where you lead people to live and love like Jesus. Paul was in a place called Philippi. If you've got your Bibles open still, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, walking through it. Paul is in a place called Philippi, which was the capital city, the biggest city in the area known as Macedonia. Macedonia was where Alexander the Great came from. If you know history, Alexander the Great conquered most of the world, came out of this area. So Paul ends up in Philippi. 
And the very first thing that Paul does when he's in Philippi is he goes outside the city to a place of prayer. So Acts chapter 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now, here, here's what was happening. These were people who worshiped the one true God. They worshiped the God of Israel. But apparently there weren't enough men who were Jews in this town because in order to start a synagogue back in these times, a synagogue was the Jewish place of worship, you had to have at least 10 men to start it up. Ladies, I'm sorry, that's what it was. But you guys got to go sit by the river. So they just sat by the river instead, couldn't start their own synagogue. They got to go hang out by the river, and they were sitting out there. So because there weren't enough men to start a synagogue, the women would gather out by this river at a place of prayer. And so Paul, he's a Jew, and he knows this is probably what's going on. He knows there's no synagogue in Philippi, so he's going to go out and find wherever the place of prayer is. And he goes out there, and he sits down, and he begins to talk with them. And this is what we learn. One of those who was listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened up her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household, or excuse me, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so what happened is Paul just sits down to have a conversation with these ladies. And his conversation ends up being about the things of God. He tells them about Jesus, about how Jesus was the Messiah sent from God to die for them. And through that conversation, through that one relationship, this lady in her whole house start to follow the Lord. And not only are they baptized and start following the Lord, but suddenly they have a house, and her house becomes the base of operations for Paul's ministry in this whole city. Here's what you got to realize. God has placed you in relationships and those relationships are the place where he wants to work through you. But it's hard for God to work through us when we're caught up in our own stuff. It's hard for God to work through us when we're just focused on what's going to matter to us. You guys ever been in a conversation and you hit that point in the conversation where you've almost used up everything there is to talk about? For some of you, that's like three hours into the conversation. For some of us, it's like 60 seconds in, and we're about done. And you know you're about out of stuff to say, and you don't know this person very well, and you start looking for an exit strategy. How do I end this conversation in a non-awkward way? For some of you, that is impossible to do. You cannot end a conversation without it being awkward. And you just got to own that. But, but you start thinking about that. Now, why are you thinking that way? Because even in the middle of a conversation with somebody else, you're self-focused. It's so easy to be this way. How, how do I finish this conversation without myself looking bad? What if instead of thinking that way, instead you thought, how can I use the next awkward 60 seconds of this conversation to lead that person to live and love like Jesus. When your default is right, it changes the way you live. When your default is right, it changes everything. For a lot of us, we think in order to share the gospel, in order to really do that well, I've got to just give a sermon. I've got to stand up and preach. I've got to... Often God does his best work in the most insignificant moments, in the small conversations. When I was in high school, I went to a prison to preach. My dad went out, and so I went with him. And I was preaching in the youth pod. And so there's, there's two stories, kind of big open area, and it was on lockdown that day. Now, I should have known, if a prison's on lockdown, don't go in. Right? That should have been like the number, the first thing on my mind. But I didn't know better. And so I walked in. Everybody's in their cells locked up, but they're shouting. Like, they're not happy that they're locked up. And so they're shouting back and forth. And I think they were shouting at me, too, but I just kind of ignored it. So I walk in, and all these F-bombs thrown around, and I'm, I'm out there. And I'm little 17-year-old Elijah. So I stand up on the stairs. And I start preaching from Genesis 12, because what else do you do? You know, if someone's shouting the F-bomb at you, 
preach at them, right? And so I start preaching, and I just get up there, and about halfway through, literally, no one can even hear me. Like, I would have had to start shouting F-bombs back at them for them to listen to me. And I wasn't about to do that while I was preaching. So I eventually just quit preaching. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I wasn't ready for this moment. Like, what, what do you do when you're trying to preach and everyone's shouting F-bombs at you? They don't train you for this, right? And so I was standing there trying to figure out what to do. And I remember my dad said that sometimes he'd go around on lockdown and, and pray for the guys. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go do this. So I go up to one of the doors that's shut. And there's about a two-inch gap between the floor and the bottom of the door. And I get down on the ground. I'm like, hey, bro, what's up? And he was probably yelling at me, but I, I just ignored that. I said, hey, can I pray for you? And he slides up to the door. And he's got a bag of white powder, right, cocaine. Now, I was, I was a homeschooled kid, okay? I hadn't done a, many lines of cocaine at this point in my life. <laughs> and so the first thought in my mind was like, uh-oh, like, could I act, get high off of being this close to him? You know, like... like how easy is it to snort a line of cocaine? I, I didn't know, so I kind of backed up a little bit, but I'm down there, and I'm like, hey, man, how can I pray for you? And he said, man, I, I'm addicted to this stuff, and I want to quit. Man, talk about a better time of ministry than me preaching on Genesis 12, saying, hey, this, this is what you got to do. Hey, this is what the Word of God says. Now, I believe in the power of the Word of God, but you know what I believe in? I believe in the power of the Spirit in us to help us in conversations, small conversations with people. And so I prayed for him. And I don't know what happened to be the place of our ministry. God's going to use our relationships as the foundation of what he wants to do in our lives. And if our default is, I'm going to help this person, I'm going to lead this person to live in love like Jesus, he's going to do amazing things. Here's the second thing that happens in Paul's life. Paul is there. He already has this convert. He's got a house to stay, a base of operations for his ministry. Then in verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, they're going back to worship, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. That's really convenient, isn't it? Like lottery numbers, hello, come on. Now, now she, was, she actually had a demon, though. This was a demon inside of her, and your translation might say a spirit of divination. Mine says a spirit by which she could predict the future. The actual Greek here is it's a python spirit, as in the snake python. And the reason why is because back then they, they believed in Greek, they believed in Greek mythology, right? And they believed that Apollo, the, the god, was actually a snake as well who encircled his temple and the oracle at Delphi. The oracle at Delphi was this woman who would predict the future, they thought, and so people would come into her. And so what, what it's teaching us is that this woman had the same spirit, the same sort of demon that the oracle at Delphi would have had. And she was possessed, and she would actually give people, she would speak to people about the future. I don't know if it was right or not, if she was, had insight into the future. But she would speak to people, and her owners would make money off of her. And verse 17, this girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are showing you the way to be saved. Now, that's a little weird, right? I would think a demon often wouldn't be the one to be like, Yo, these people are the real deal. Listen to them as they teach you how to be saved. But this demon shouting this, why? Probably because the demon wanted to discredit Paul and the, the other people with him to say, these aren't going to be able to help you. They're as helpful as I am, right? They're not going to be able to help you. So she keeps shouting this. And the Bible says, verse 18, she kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, the key in all this, right, we, we see other times that, that Paul and others say, in the name of Jesus, come out. In the name of Jesus, be free of demons. That's not surprising. What strikes me about what Paul does is it said that he became deeply troubled by this. And so he operated, he lived out of a burden God had given him. When is the last time you made a decision based on a burden God had given you? 
something, he, he just gave you this passion to help a certain group of people or this passion to love someone well. And he just gave you this burden for them. A burden is something God doesn't, he doesn't give everybody the same burden. We all have different things that God's put on our hearts and said, hey, you need to do this. We need to love this person well. There's a guy named Eddie who comes here. A lot of you guys know him, Eddie Stewart. And Eddie Stewart recently got offered a job. He was offered a job working on an oil rig. Now, I don't know if you guys know much about working on oil rigs, but you can make a lot of money working on oil rigs. So when he told me this, I was like, dude, when are you going? Like, 100%, you should go, and you should buy me nice gifts, too, because you'll have a lot of money. That's my thought, right? Like, yeah, buddy, I'm loving this. My default is like, yo, what can I get out of this? I loved it. And I was like, man, are you doing it? He said, no, I actually already turned him down. I'm like, dude, what? what do they, are they looking for somebody else? Because I'm free right now. What are they looking for? And he, here's what he said. And he said, I, I, I turned them down because I feel like the Lord is calling me to prison ministry in the Jackson area. Talk about someone who has the right default mindset. And he's like, man, I, I got this incredible opportunity to make a lot of money, but my default is I'm called to lead people to live in love like Jesus. So I'm just going to do that. And so he is. So honestly, he's, he's doing that right now. In fact, I think this afternoon, they're going out to preach at a prison. If you are interested in serving, if the Lord's put this burden on your heart as well, you should get together with Eddie, and, and he can make that happen. But I loved hearing that. God gave him a burden, and so he operated out of that burden. For so many of us, we don't operate out of a burden. We operate out of, what do I want? How do I feel? And what should life look like for me? But when God gives you a burden, it transforms your life and allows you to minister to other people. And so Paul, listen to this, Paul used relationships and he used a burden that God had given him. But there's one more thing he used. When the owners of the slave girl found out that she had been freed from this demon, they were ticked off. Because that was their way of making money. Like they, they just let her go and she'd give prophecies and people would give her money and they'd make a lot of money off her. And so they were really annoyed when this happened. So they took Paul and they took Silas, his ministry partner, and they took him in front of the, the Roman magistrate there. And they accused them of doing things that were, were causing issues in the city. And so verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And that's how Paul ended up in jail, because he was leading people to live in love like Jesus. He did it through relationships. He did it through a burden on his heart. And I love what he does next. He's in jail. His feet are in stocks. How, I mean, that's just the worst. I mean, being in jail is bad. But having your feet in stocks, like, what if you have an itch on the bottom of your foot? Anybody with me on this? You can't get to it. Like, how in fear? I'd rather be in jail than have an itchy foot I can't scratch. Anybody with me on this? You guys aren't with me on this. Okay, that's okay. Put me in jail. So they're sitting in jail, and for most of us, you know, you just get beaten, you get flogged, you're stripped naked right now, you have all these sores on your back, or these, you've just been beat up. And, and what I'd be doing is being like, man, that's kind of tough. Like, I, I don't like this. Is there a way I can get out of this? My prayer is like, God, can you smite these people with your wrath right now? Like, there's, there's psalms like that in the Bible. I'd, I'd learn those psalms for such a time as this. Like, Lord, smite mine enemies, destroy them, like, take them out. Instead, Paul and Silas at midnight are praising God. They're singing hymns. They got the worship karaoke cranked up. They're singing reckless love at the top of their lungs. Yeah. And they're just singing it out at midnight. And it says all the other prisoners were listening. Doesn't say they were enjoying it, by the way. Doesn't say they wanted it. At midnight, they couldn't help but listen to these guys just praising God. Why were they praising God? 
Because no matter what happened in their lives, their default was to lead people to live in love like Jesus. It doesn't matter how hard it got, they were going to lead people to live in love like Jesus. And then God moved, brings this incredible earthquake. All the doors pop open. Now, most of us, when you're in prison and the doors pop open, you put on your track shoes and you get running. You get out of there as fast as possible. These guys did. Because their default was not myself. Their default was, how do I lead people to live in love like Jesus? And they actually are there. And the jailer who was told, you have to guard these guys, is about to kill himself. And they, they come out and they say, hold up, we're here. You know, sometimes your best ministry, the best thing God's going to do through you is just you being present somewhere. Just you being there. Often that's all it takes. You being there and being focused on the other person instead of focused on yourself. And this was Paul's life. Because they were present, they made a difference. Because they were constantly focused on other people, God worked through them. We start off, you have Lydia and her whole household become Christians. Why? Because Paul was just leading people to live in love like Jesus. You have this, this woman who has a demon, and Paul sets her free from the demon. Why? Because that's just who he is. His default is leading people to live in love like Jesus. You have Philip, or excuse me, you have the, the jailer, the, the Philippian jailer, and all his household, they become Christians and are baptized. Why? Because Paul's just leading people to live in love like Jesus. That's what he does. That's his default. Now, you know the one thing that can get in the way of you leading people to live in love like Jesus? There's, there's only one thing. It's when you become self-focused. Now, how easy is this to become self-focused? Most of us, probably even right now, we're thinking about our day and about what we're doing this afternoon, about what we're going to eat for lunch. I'm having some incredible chicken curry my mom made. I cannot wait for it. So right now, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about the future. But what if God wants to redirect your thoughts and say, instead of thinking about your future, focus on what I'm doing right now in the present? I'm really concerned about uh, a lot of our lives sometimes, not anyone in particular, just, just in general in life. I think we're so self-absorbed sometimes that people don't even realize we're followers of Jesus. How long does someone have to spend around you before they know you're a follower of Jesus? Five minutes? Five months? Five years? Never? How long does someone have to spend around you before they know you're a follower of Jesus? For Paul... People figured it out pretty fast because he was leading them to live in love like Jesus. There wasn't a question. It wasn't like, are you, are you like a, a Jehovah's Witness or a Christian? Or like what? There was none of that. They knew exactly he was a follower of Jesus, and he was leading other people to do the same thing. And when you're focused on that default, God does amazing things in your life. You guys ever heard the story of the one-armed judo fighter? Very insensitive story. And we're going to share it today. It's great. So the one-armed judo fighter, none of you know it. This is awesome. So this guy loses his left arm. Now, I'm left-handed. Okay, that's, that's horrible. Most of you are right-handed. You're like, yeah, whatever. Lose the left arm. Oh, just take it away. He loses his left arm. And he says it's merely a flesh wound when he loses it. <laughs> Making sure he has some Monty Python fans. So he loses his left arm. And, and he ends up still trying to do judo. And obviously, if, if you lose an arm in judo, I don't know if you guys know much about judo, but it's a lot of throwing people and, and holds. You, you need your arms for it. Like, you, you need your arms to do judo well. But he gets a sensei who says, you know what, we're just going to focus on what you can do. And so he teaches him this one move, and they just do over and over and over again. It's the whole kind of, when are we going to do something else, wax on, wax off kind of thing. The, the, the judo fighter is like, hey, can, I, can we work on something else? Can we learn something else? No, we're going to keep on doing this same move. And eventually a sensei says, okay, you're ready to go to a competition. 
So they show up. First, first time, he's competing. He's only got his right arm, and he goes in. He knows one move. What can you do with one move and one arm in judo? Not much, okay? So he goes in, and he's getting whooped up on first time. So when they, when they end the first period, his sensei comes over. He says, man, depend on that one move. He goes back out, does his one move, and actually pins the guy and wins. Now, you can imagine, like, fighting someone with one arm is just a, like, that's what a terrible thing to have to do, first of all. Like, you feel like a jerk, and then when he beats you, you feel like an incredible loser. It's a lose-lose situation. And so he keeps going on. He wins his next one and his next one. So this one, he's, he's three matches in, and he's won all of them, and he finally comes to the championship. And he's going against this guy who's been the champion for three years. And they go into that fight, and he's getting whooped up on. Like, the guy can't quite pin him, but he's getting whooped up on. And every time a sensei says, wait for an opportunity to use that move and use it. Wait for an opportunity, use that move, use it. Finally, he gets a chance to use that move, does it, pins the champion, and one-armed judo man is the new champion. Oh, they celebrate, you know, it's, it's the classic movie scene. Oh, hooray, and lift him up, and all that stuff. On the way home, he's talking with his sensei. And talking about what he can do better. And, and then he eventually says, how did I win that tournament? I got one move, and I got no left arm. How did I win that tournament? And his sensei looks back at him, and he says, what I taught you was one of the hardest moves in judo. And you did it so much, and you learned it really well, that you were able to do that. And the only defense against that one move is for your opponent to grab your left arm. <laughs> and you've got no left arm. You're going to win every single time when you get to use that move because he goes to grab your arm and there is no arm there. Now, here's where I'm going with this. For us, we've got one move we should be doing. Lead people to live and love like Jesus. Lead people to live and love like Jesus. And the only thing that can stop it is when you're self-focused. The only thing that can stop that from happening is when you're self-focused and you say, you know what, I can't start that conversation to lead someone to live and love like Jesus because... Ooh, I don't know how they're going to take it. I, I, can't do, I can't love that person like that because it might be awkward. And you start thinking about yourself. Uh, a couple of years after Paul was in Philippi, he actually wrote a letter the, to the Philippians. It's in your Bible. And in that letter, he says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Now, what does that mean? It means as long as I'm alive, Paul's saying, I'm going to be living for Jesus. My focus is going to be on Jesus. And if something happens and I get put in jail and put in stocks and I die there, it's going to be gain because I get to spend eternity with Jesus. When you have that perspective, to live as Christ, to die as gain, you got no left arm. Every single time when you live in love like Jesus, nothing bad can happen because God's going to have you. And for a lot of us, we're letting fear, we're letting anxiety, we're letting busyness hold us back from just leading people to live in love like Jesus. In the big stuff, in the small stuff, in our relationships, when God gives us a burden, when he gives us an opportunity, we should jump forward with our default, which is leading people to live in love like Jesus. This week, you will have opportunities to do that. It'll be small, probably, a conversation, a small conversation with someone, but you can encourage them, you can help them to follow Jesus, to live like Jesus wants. It might be grabbing coffee with somebody, sitting down, and, and instead of talking about your problems, and look, we know you've got them. We all know you've got your problems. Instead of talking about your problems, just listening to their problems as much as you can. It may look like helping somebody right now who's, who's trying to get ready for Thanksgiving or Christmas, or maybe doesn't have a place to go for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And you know what? You might not either. And, but instead of just saying, hey, oh, I don't have anywhere to go, lead someone to live in love like Jesus by inviting them into your home, by loving them well. Maybe it looks like you're seeing someone 
and, and just striking up a conversation, just encouraging them. You don't know them, and there's, there's no reason you should say anything nice to them, but you're going to do it anyway because your goal, your mindset, your default is to lead people to live in love like Jesus. Can you imagine a whole church of people that just do this? Like our default is not what's going to be awkward or what's going to affect me, but just how can I lead other people to the God who saved me? How can I just lead other people well? How can I just love people well? How can I just go above and beyond to help other people and bring them back into this community? If we're people like that, God is going to make each one of our lives and us as a church, he's going to help all of us to make a difference. And not just a difference for right now, but to actually change whole trajectories of people's lives. The burden I feel like God has given me is to help young men who don't know what they are doing in life to start following Jesus and get a vision for what he wants to do in them. Because I want to change whole family trees. Like, I want to get to heaven and be like, I want God to be like, this was the family tree that was going to happen, and here's the family tree that happened because you followed me. I, I can't wait for that. God's given you a burden. You may not know what it is yet. God's given you a burden. He's put it on you, and you need to go start living into that. God's given you relationships. You need to start living into those relationships. And God's going to give you opportunities. And you need to live into those opportunities this week. But it starts small. All you got to do is be always ready to lead people to live and love like Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for being a God who came down and saved us. And right now we ask that you would help each one of us as, as we're following you, serving you, Lord, as we are seeking to do your will, seeking to have lives that matter, I ask that you would help us in this moment, right now, to constantly, always be leading other people to live and love like you. God, we, we need your help to do that. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of insecurity. There's a lack of confidence that so many of us has, have, that you can even do this in our lives. So I pray that you would push back, that you would fight back against all of that. Now, right now, you would start to give people a sense of the burden you're putting on their heart. What is the burden that you're putting on our hearts? And God, would you open up our eyes to that, to that reality? Lord, as you're putting relationships on our minds right now, there are certain relationships you've given us where you want us to be the people who lead these others to you. Would you bring those relationships to mind right now? God, I know there's opportunities that you have put in front of us, you will put in front of us. And I pray that you would awaken us to that. Help us to see those opportunities, not from a self-centered perspective, but from a perspective of how can I love this person well? How can I love in this situation well? How can I lead other people in this situation? Father, open our eyes to these opportunities. As we remain in prayer today, I know that God is speaking to some of you. He's put a burden on your heart. Or maybe that burden was already there, but he's reminding you of it. He's put relationships, opportunities on your heart. And right now, he's asking you to take a step forward, not for yourself, but for other people. And he's challenging you right now. And it's not me doing that. It's actually the Spirit of God speaking to your heart right now, challenging you. Is there anyone who'd be willing to slip up a hand and say, you know what, that God's challenging me to take a step forward. God's challenging me to, to help someone, to lead someone. He's challenging me with a burden. Anybody just put a hand up right now. We've got a couple hands up. Anybody else say, that's me. Good, praise God. Anybody else say, that's me thankful for the Spirit of God who is speaking here today to us. And Father, I ask that you'd help my brothers and sisters who sense you speaking to them. Lord, I ask that you would help them not just to do one more thing, but that you would change the default of their lives to where everything they do is leading other people to you. Father, help us to be a church that's doing that, a church that welcomes and loves everyone and then goes out and leads other people back to you. Father, we want to be that kind of church. We want to be those people. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus.
Amen. We're about to take up an offering right now. An offering is our way of giving back to God because we're thankful to Him. And as we do that, uh, you have a chance to drop in your red card as well. So if you fill out a red card, you can drop that in as it comes by. Maybe you, you want to start serving. Maybe you want to start helping others in a new way. If you're interested in the prison ministry Eddie's doing, and that's a burden God's put on your heart, mark that on your red card. Uh, we'd love to help you take the next step in leading other people to live in love like Jesus. As the bucket is coming by, you may come today not with money to give, but actually a need. And if you're here with a need for food or shelter, then we would love to be the way God meets that need for you. Reach in, pull out a bill, no judgment. We'd love for, to meet your need that way through God's people here today. I'm going to pray for the offering, and then the buckets are going to pass by. Once they pass by, we can go ahead and stand up and worship with one more song today. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the offering. Thank you for the money right now we're giving. Lord, we know that it's not about the money. It's about our hearts. So we're bringing our hearts, our whole selves to you right now, asking that you would work through the gifts given. Lord, for the money given today, I pray you would take that money, that you would send it all across the world as we send it out, and you would use it to lead people to live and love like you. That's what we want. That is our hearts. We ask that you would do this in our lives and through our money today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.